You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Would you please open in your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6, we like to study through books of the Bible here at Whitefields, and what that means is that we'll take a book of the Bible and we'll study through it chapter by chapter, story by story, and verse by verse, and our desire with that is that through doing that, we would get to hear God speak to us through his word in the way that it's designed to be read and designed to be heard. So we've been studying through First and Second Kings. We're now in Second Kings chapter 6, and we're going to get into chapter 7. Actually, we're going to get all the way through chapter 7. Let me ask you, have you ever been in a situation that was so desperate that you did something that you thought you would never be willing to do. My wife and I have been watching these, uh, these survival shows. If any of you guys watch Alone, right? So we love to watch Alone. We love to watch other survival shows together. And one of the things that happens on these survival shows is that, especially in Alone, like these people legit starve, right? Like they are really hungry. And when you starve like that, you begin willing, being willing to eat a lot of things that you wouldn't normally be willing to eat, right? They're just eating mice. They're like cheering because they caught a mouse and they're just like eating it whole. Uh, one guy, I watched him eat a can of leeches, a can of leeches, really. And, uh, you know, I've never been that desperate, but there were some times in my life where I was uh, pretty desperate because when I first moved to Hungary, I was really poor. Like, I had very little money. And in fact, uh, I even had less money than most of the Hungarian people that I knew who didn't have any money to begin with. And so I remember one time, you know, I, I was in my early 20s. I was talking about this with somebody earlier this week, how we were both saying, yeah, in our early 20s, there were times when we ate things which we would never have thought that we'd be willing to eat, right? Like, even like things that were rotten, because that's all we had. I remember one time I ate a bag of rotten peanuts and I paid the price for it, let me tell you. But literally, it was the only thing in my cabinet besides cockroaches, right? Like, so, you know, when I was a young single missionary in Hungary, I remember there were times when I knew, like, hey, it's Tuesday, and I'm excited because there's Bible study tonight. I was excited to receive the word, but I was also excited because I knew that they put out chips and pretzels, and that was going to be my meal for the day. So I remember I would chow down on those chips and pretzels, and one time somebody was like, wow, you're really going out it with the chips, right? And I was like, back off, I'm hungry. You know? <laughs> In fact, I was so broke that at one point, I ate something that put me in the hospital. I actually went to the hospital uh, because I ate something out of desperation. Okay, so desperation makes people do things they thought they would never be willing to do because they feel that they have no other option. And that can be really bad sometimes, right? But it can also be good in some cases. I mean, desperation can cause people in some cases to do the right thing, even though they've been hesitating to do it. Like when the doctor gives you that diagnosis, which finally causes you to change your lifestyle, make some healthy decisions because you realize how desperate your situation is. And, and for many people, it's when they come to a point of desperation that they turn to God and they surrender their life to him, finally. Well, here in 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7, we're going to see some people who are in a truly desperate situation. The capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel, the city of Samaria, was under siege. The people were literally starving to death. But God is going to bring about a miracle in this situation, and he's going to do it 
in such a way that the people have a hard time believing that it could actually happen. And he's actually going to choose some very unlikely people to do it through and to be messengers of this good news. And here's what we're going to see. Every week, I give you a sentence which functions as our outline. And I always encourage you, memorize the sentence. Write it down. If you write nothing else down, write this down. Take a picture of it. And later on, when somebody asks you, hey, what'd you guys talk about at church? You're going to know because you're going to have this sentence. Okay, here's the sentence for this week that's also the outline for our study. Like lepers in a famine who have discovered a feast, the gospel is good news that can't be kept to ourselves. Like lepers in a famine who have discovered a feast, the gospel is good news that can't be kept to ourselves. So let's take that sentence and study through this passage. So let's begin with that first part. Like lepers in a famine. 2 Kings chapter 6, we pick up where we left off last week in verse 24. It says this, Afterwards, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. Again, Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. You remember that Israel at this time was divided as a nation into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north, the capital city was Samaria, and the kingdom of Judah in the south, whose capital city was Jerusalem. So this is the capital city of the north. Samaria. Now, to besiege a city, right? This is something that still goes on in warfare, even to this day. What it means is that the army would surround a city in order to cut off all routes in and out of the city. Their purpose is to cut off all routes of travel and all routes of trade. And the goal is to starve the people into submission. A siege would often last for uh, months. It could even last for several years. I mean, even in recent times, maybe some of you remember that in Europe, the city of Sarajevo was besieged for many years, right? There's nothing allowed in or out. They cut off all routes for trade and travel. And so with no way to get uh, food and supplies into the city, eventually the people would just run out of food after they ate everything they had stored up in the city, and they would begin to starve. And that's exactly what happened as we read in verse 25. There was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver, and the fourth part of a cob of dove's dung was sold for five shekels of silver. Listen, the famine in Samaria was so bad that people resorted to eating bird droppings. And, and donkey's head. Have you ever eaten donkey's head? Of course you haven't, right? Because nobody eats donkey's head. You'd have to pay me to eat donkey's head, unless, of course, you're starving, in which case you will pay 80 shekels of silver. You'd be like, I will pay for the privilege of eating a donkey's head. In fact, I will pay money in order to eat dove dung, because that's how hungry I am. I was reading up on this. Turns out dove dung tends to have some nutritional value, because I guess they eat seeds and stuff. So if you're ever reading really hungry, you could eat that. But you're probably thinking, you couldn't pay me a million dollars to eat dove dung. Well, look, these guys were so hungry. This situation was so desperate. Not only were they saying, OK, I'll eat it, but they were paying good money to eat it. In fact, it was so desperate that only the richest people in the country were able to afford dove's dung and donkey heads. Well, if that wasn't bad enough, it actually gets worse in verse 26. Now the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, and a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor? From the wine press? In other words, he thinks she's asking for food. And he says, Hey, I don't have any food. I, I, what do you think? I got food laying around on the threshing floor? No, everything's gone. And the king asked her, Well, what's your trouble? And she said, 
This woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. This is truly horrific. Things had gotten so bad in Samaria that people turned to cannibalism. Mothers were eating their own children. It's horrific. Well, listen, when the king heard the words of this woman, he tore his clothes. It's an act of grieving and sorrow. And it says that now when he passed by the wall, the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath his body. He was in a constant state of mourning over the state of his country. And he said, may God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. The king of Israel was understandably grieved and upset by how bad the situation had gotten there in Samaria. But he concludes something that's pretty weird, actually. He, in verse 31, he blames Elisha. He says, this is all Elisha's fault that this is happening to us. So you know what we need to do? We need to go find Elisha, and we need to kill him. That's a strange response, don't you think? I mean, did Elisha cause the Syrians to attack Israel? Of course not. In fact, the only person who could really be blamed for the current state of affairs there in Samaria was the king of Israel himself. The king of Israel at this time was a man named Jehoram. Jehoram is the son of King Ahab, who we read about in the end of 1 Kings. He was the most wicked and evil king that the northern kingdom of Israel ever had. And what we read, though, in 2 Kings, uh, in the beginning of 2 Kings, is that Jehoram, the son of Ahab, continued in all the wicked and evil ways of his father, which included pagan worship that included human sacrifices, even the sacrifice of little children. And he led the people away from the Lord. He led them into apostasy. And here's what's so interesting. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, there is this section where God warned the people of Israel. Understand, hundreds of years before this, He warned them. He said, here are the kinds of things that might happen to you if you forsake the covenant that I have made with you. If you turn your back on me, if you walk away from me, if you get involved in pagan stuff, here are the kind of things that could happen to you. And he describes the exact kinds of horrors that we read about actually happening here in 2 Kings chapter 6. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy 28. They shall besiege you in all your towns throughout the land, which the Lord your God has given you, and you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. This terrible situation was a product of Israel's apostasy and forsaking the Lord and getting involved in all this pagan stuff. They were warned that this would happen. Understand, this situation could have been avoided. It should have been avoided. And yet, rather than repenting, rather than turning to the Lord, the people persisted in their evil ways to the point where God removed his hand of protection from their city and from their nation. And yet here's Jehoram, and he blames Elisha for this terrible situation rather than taking responsibility for it himself. And what does he do? He sends an assassin to go down to Elisha's house and murder him. 
It says in verse 32, Elisha's there at his house, and somehow the Lord tells him, somebody's coming to murder you. So he tells the people who are with him, these other spiritual leaders, the elders of Israel, he tells them, hey guys, somebody's coming to kill me, so could you please barricade the door so that they can't get in? So that's what they do. They barricade the door. And in verse 33, the assassin arrives, and he's not able to get into the house because it's barricaded. So he shouts through the door. He shouts a message from King Jehoram to the people. He says, we blame you, and we blame God for all these things that, were, that are happening to us. And you know what? We're finished with God. We're done with him now. That's kind of interesting, right? I mean, they were already kind of done with God, right? Like they, They've been ignoring God and pursuing and worshiping other things for many years up until this point. But now something bad happens, and suddenly they're upset with God that he hasn't done more to help them. Well, in spite of their attitudes, in spite of their actions, God is going to do something amazing to rescue them from this terrible famine. Look at what happens in chapter 7, verse 1. But Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate in Samaria. Look, what these prices mean is that in 24 hours' time, the famine will be over, and there will be such an abundance of food in the city of Samaria that it will be dirt cheap to buy it. Well, listen, that would be incredible. So incredible, in fact, was this promise that some people had a really hard time believing that this was even possible. Look at what it says in verse 2. Then the captain of those whose hand the king leaned on said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, how could this thing be? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So the king's captain apparently has come down to be part of this murderous group that's going to kill Elisha. So Elisha gives this promise. Hey, it's going to be over. God's going to show you mercy, and it's going to happen in 24 hours' time. And this guy's like, that's not even possible. I don't even believe that God could do that. What's God going to do? Is he going to make food fall from the sky? That's the only way that this could possibly happen. And, and he's not wrong, really, because think about this. Even if this siege ended immediately, it would take weeks to get enough food into the city to not only feed the people, but have such an abundance that the price would get lowered to the point where Elisha's talking about. So this captain, though, here's the problem. He's failing to consider two things. He's failing, on the one hand, to consider the greatness of God. Can God do such a thing? Of course. Of course, God can do anything. And you know what else he's failing to realize? The faithfulness or the reliability of God's word, that if God makes a promise, God keeps his word. So Elisha tells this captain, he says, look, not only is God going to do this, but you're going to see it. But even though you see it, you will not partake in that food. You will not eat of the food. Well, how is God going to fix this famine in just 24 hours time? How is God going to bring an end to this famine and bring all this food into Samaria? Well, check it out. God's going to bring this salvation in a way that's totally unexpected, and he's going to use a very unexpected group of people to do it and to spread the word. Check out what it says in verse 3. Now, there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And these lepers said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? Let us enter the city. The famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we will also die. So come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians, and if they spare our lives, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall die. 
I like their thinking. This famine, listen, this famine affected everybody. There was nobody whose life wasn't affected by the famine. But understand, some people were affected by the famine more than other people. And if there was one group of people that was particularly affected by the famine, it was the lepers. Maybe they were affected the worst. You might remember we've been talking about leprosy the past couple studies. Leprosy was a terrible disease. It was an incurable disease. It was also a highly contagious disease. It had a 100% mortality rate. Every single person who contracted leprosy died. But here's the deal with leprosy. It didn't kill you right away. No, you would suffer and you would die very slowly. Over the course of years, it would cause your body to fall apart and break down, and it would take years for you to finally die. Anyone who contracted leprosy, they were forced to live outside the city and they would have to fend for themselves. They couldn't work. They couldn't farm. The only way that they had food, you know how lepers got their food? They got their food by scavenging in the trash heap. They got their food by scavenging in the trash heap. But listen, in a time of famine, nobody's throwing out edible things in the trash. And so if you were a uh, leper, it was already bad. But if you were a leper in a time of famine, it was especially bad. Everybody in Samaria was starving, but nobody was starving more than the lepers. So these four lepers, they're sitting around. They're literally starving to death. And one of them says to the other, you know what we should do? We should go into town. And we should see if we can get some food. And then the other leper says to him, bro, we can't go into town. We're lepers. We're not allowed to go into town. If we go into town, well, first, the Syrians will kill us because we got to get through them to get to the town. And then if the Syrians don't kill us, then when we get into town, the people in the town will kill us because we're not supposed to be in there. We're lepers. But the other guy says, okay, so you're worried about dying? Well, guess what we're doing right now? Like, we are going to die. So might as well give it a shot. We've literally got nothing to lose. Look, the worst thing that can happen is we die. But we're going to die anyway, so we might as well try something. You know, throughout the Bible, we, we've been talking about this, that leprosy is a picture, an image. It's used as a picture of sin. Because what leprosy does to your body is the same thing that sin does to your soul. It degrades you, it isolates you, and ultimately, it destroys you. And I want you to understand this. These lepers, they're kind of a picture of us, aren't they? These lepers are a picture of us. I don't know if you know this, but you're going to die. I hope I'm not breaking the news to you for the first time. You are going to die. I don't know when. I don't know how. But listen, your life here on earth is going to end one day. You and me, therefore, are not that much different than these lepers. Just like them, think about it. Our bodies are falling apart, and one day we're going to die. But here's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that God can heal. God desires to heal. God will heal the sickness, the leprosy that exists in your soul. So that even though your body of flesh will one day die, your soul can be saved. Your soul can live forever. And you will get a new body that will live forever. Now, maybe you might say, yeah, you know, that's cool. That sounds good. That sounds really great, actually. But how do I know that that's, that's really true? I mean, how do I know that that's not just a pipe dream, that that's not just, you know, some fairy tale? Well, on the one hand, we have the testimony of the scriptures. On the other hand, you have the historical evidence of Jesus' resurrection. And I could give you, I could give you a whole list of reasons why you should believe that what the Bible says is true. 
But listen, and, and we've done that before. We've done whole series and whole studies on that. But today, I want to point out something else to you. I want you to ask you this question. Listen, what have you got to lose? Literally, what have you got to lose? You're going to die either way. If you put your faith in Jesus, and then you know what? After this life, there's just nothing, right? There's just, there's no heaven, no hell. There's just nothing. You just die, and that's it. Then look, by following Jesus, you will have lost nothing. You will have lost nothing. In fact, you will probably live a better, happier, healthier life. Even science shows that. Because you have joy and hope, you will live a better, happier, healthier life. So you, you will lose nothing by putting your faith in Jesus. But here's the thing. If you don't put your faith in Jesus, and it turns out that all this stuff in the Bible is actually true, well, then you will have lost everything. It will be an absolute, utter tragedy. You know, there's an actual name for this line of reasoning. I don't know if you know that, but it's called Pascal's Wager. We've got it there on the screen, just in case you're curious. Pascal's Wager. And it's named after a, a philosopher, a French philosopher named Blaise Pascal. He was a Christian, by the way. And one of the things that he would say to people as he was talking to them about Jesus and why they should put their faith in Jesus, he would say this. Look, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you surrender your life to him, you literally have nothing to lose by doing so. And you have everything to gain. But on the other hand, if you don't put your faith in Jesus, you are taking a terrible risk. By not putting your faith in Jesus, you will gain nothing, and you stand to lose everything. And what he said, and, and this is really true, he said, listen, the only rational choice, the only smart thing you could possibly do is to put your faith and your trust in Jesus, is to embrace the hope and the message of the gospel. And that's the same logic these lepers were using here, isn't it? They said, well, we have nothing to lose, and we have everything to gain. So let's take this step of faith, and let's see what God might do. Well, that brings us to the second part of our sentence. Like lepers who have discovered a great feast, like lepers in a famine who have discovered a great feast. It says, verse 5, so they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. Well, what, that's weird, isn't it? The camp of the Syrians was made up of thousands of people. It was like a city unto itself. It was full of supplies and food, which had to be enough to last for several months, as long as this siege might take. So the lepers, they come to this camp, and all the tents are still standing, but there's nobody in the tents. Now, how can this be? Well, it tells us in verse 6, For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses and the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the kings of, the, kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and they fled for their lives. Somehow... I don't know if God caused electrical impulses in their ears. I don't know if God created sound waves. But somehow, he caused these Syrian soldiers to hear the sound of an approaching army. But of course, no army was approaching. And so what did they do? Well, in their panic, they thought, we're surrounded by a much bigger army. And so what did they do? They fled, and they left everything just as it was. They packed nothing. They took nothing with them. They just ran away, and they left behind all their food rations, everything just the way it was when they left. 
It says verse 8. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. And then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Just listen to this. These skinny, sickly lepers, they got bones popping out. They're dying of hunger. For years, they've been eating out of the trash. And now what do they do? They walk in to this tent where there's a banquet, right? There's a big fat roast on the table. There are glasses of wine. And they just sit there, and they dine, and they eat like kings. It's so much food. The four lepers could probably have lived off of all this food for the rest of their lives, right? They, they've scored. Look how the tables have turned. But listen, let's continue on this sentence. Like lepers in a famine who have discovered a feast, the gospel is good news. The gospel is good news. Listen, the, the image of lepers discovering a great feast, this is a picture of what it means to be a Christian. This is a perfect picture of the, the hope and the good news of the gospel. Look, just as leprosy is a picture in the Bible of sin, a feast is a picture in the Bible of heaven, of heaven. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a great wedding feast. In the book of Revelation, heaven is described as a great feast, a celebration where we will eat and drink at God's table forever. Listen, if you've ever been to a really good wedding, then you know what this is like. Or if you've ever had a really great family celebration. I think the closest thing we probably have in our culture to a great feast is what we do at Thanksgiving. But I just want you to imagine, that's how God describes heaven. He says it's Thanksgiving, except you never get fat, and there are no weird conversations and no arguments about politics. You're like, that sounds like heaven. I'm like, I know. That's what the Bible says. Well, notice what the lepers say in verse 9. They say, this is a day of good news. Guys, you know, the word gospel, which is what we call the central message of the Bible, the central message of Christianity is what we call the gospel. The gospel simply means good news. And the message of the gospel, you know what it is? The core message of the Bible is this. God welcomes lepers like you and me to sit at his table, his banquet table, forever. This empty camp, you know what else it means? It means that the siege is over. The enemy is gone. In the same way, the Bible tells us that there is an enemy of our souls. But because of what Jesus did for us in his life, in his death, and by his resurrection, the Bible tells us that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. The good news of the gospel is that the siege of your soul is over. The spiritual battle for your soul has been won by Jesus, and you have been set free in him. Listen, the reason these uh, lepers discovered this great feast, I want you to think about this. The reason they discovered this great feast was because they reached a point of desperation. They reached a point of desperation where they realized their situation was so hopeless that they had nothing to lose. Listen, that, that the same thing is true for you and me on a spiritual level as well. In order for you to really appreciate the good news of the gospel, in order for you to say, yes, I need the Savior that God has provided, in order for you to be thrilled and overjoyed by the gospel, you first have to realize how desperate your situation really is. 
But when you understand just how desperately you need that Savior and that salvation that God has provided, I'll tell you what, when you realize that, you will cling to Jesus. You will hold on to him, and you will never let go, and you'll hold on to him with joy. But wait, listen. This isn't the end of the story. There's this one more part. Like lepers in a famine who discovered a great feast, the gospel is good news that can't be kept to ourselves. It can't be kept to ourselves. Listen, here are these lepers. Just picture this scene. They're sitting around this table, right? They light the candles. They're eating this roast. They're drinking the wine. They're surrounded by gold and silver. They're stuffing stuff in their pockets. For years, they have been treated like trash. They've been eating out of the trash. They've been treated as outcasts. But now, it's them who are feasting, and the people in the city are starving to death. They're living like kings. Oh, how the tables have turned. But look at what they say in verse 9. And they said to one another, what we are doing is not right. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. These lepers were overcome with this overwhelming sense that it was not good for them to keep this food and keep this good news to themselves and not share it with the starving people in the city. So in verses 10 through 15, you can look at it in your Bibles. Here's what happens. The lepers rise up from the banquet table. They leave the banquet, and they go to the city gates of the city of Samaria. And they tell the gatekeepers of the city the good news. Guys, the siege is over. There is an abundance of food. There's more food than any of us could ever eat, right? There's enough for everybody to eat well. Listen, what these lepers did, this is, this is a great picture. By sharing this good news with all the other people, this is a perfect picture of what it is for you and me to share the good news of the gospel with other people, the good news about Jesus with others. You know, the word evangelism, it simply means to share the good news, to share the good news. And I'll tell you this, the essence of evangelism is not one person trying to force their beliefs on somebody else. Evangelism isn't you trying to force other people to think the way that you think. You know what evangelism is? I love this quote. The essence of evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. That's what evangelism is. It's you telling another person, hey, here's where I found the bread. Even though the siege was over, the people in the city didn't know it. They were still living as if they were under siege. Someone had to go and tell them, proclaim this good news to them. And these lepers understood that they could not, in good conscience, keep this information to themselves. If people out there were starving and dying and they were eating well, then it would be wrong for them to keep it to themselves. Listen, friends, there are people in your communities who are literally starving spiritually. They need to hear the good news of what Jesus has done for them. And you know what you are? You are a leper with a message. That's who you are. You're like these guys, a leper with a message. And other people need to hear the news that you have. So don't keep it to yourself. I love this quote from Richard Baxter. He was a Puritan pastor. And here's what Richard Baxter said. He said, I preached as never sure if I would ever preach again. I preached as a dying man to dying men. Friends, let me tell you, that is so incredibly accurate. You are a dying man, a dying woman. And everyone around you, they have an expiration date on them as well. And I want to encourage you to be as bold as a leper. You know these lepers? They had one big advantage. 
Because they knew that they were dying, they weren't afraid of anything, right? They were, what, are we, what are they going to do? Are they going to kill us? OK, bring it on, because we're dying, right? They had nothing to lose. And I'll tell you this, we who trust in Jesus, we have something that gives us even greater boldness than just the fact that we know that we're dying. We have the fact that we have the hope of eternal life. And so as bold as they were, we can be even bolder. I just want to remind you guys, we are living in the midst of a pandemic. People are literally dying. And you and me, you know what we have? We have the good news that leads to eternal life. How could we keep that to ourselves? We have the good news of what God has done in Jesus. And he has entrusted us with that message. Paul the Apostle, you know what he said? He said, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me. Woe to me if I keep this good news to myself. Guys, if we have this good news and we just keep it here in these, in these four walls or two walls and a curtain or whatever this is, right? If we keep this good news here amongst ourselves, just between us, we're, you know what we're like? We're like a couple of lepers sitting around a table just gorging ourselves while a whole city full of people dies unnecessarily. Friends, this is who we are. We are lepers with a message. And I want you to know this. God wants to use you to share the good news of his salvation with others. And in verse 16, the story comes to a close where it says that the famine ended, just as Elisha said it would, within 24 hours of his pronouncement. And look at what it says there in verse 16 of 2 Kings chapter 7. A seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. That's exactly what he said would happen, isn't it? Listen, God brought salvation to this besieged city, to these besieged people, in a surprising way, and he used a surprising group of people to do it. But remember, there's one, one guy left in this story, isn't there? Whatever happened to the king's captain? Remember the guy who said, that news is too good to be true. I don't believe it. Well, what happened to him? Well, here's what happened. His disbelief led to death. Read about it in verses 17 through 20. Just as Elisha had said, the unbelieving captain, he saw the end of the famine, but he didn't get to partake in the feast. Verse 17, it says that he was trampled as the people were running out of the city of Samaria, out to the camp of the Syrians to eat the food. He was trampled and he died. Listen, just as God made this promise of salvation to those people at this time, God has made a promise of salvation to you and I as well. And the question for you and me is this, what will you do with this promise of salvation that God has given you? Just as God promised to bring salvation to Samaria, God will surely keep his promise to bring salvation to your soul through Jesus. But what a tragedy it would be for you to go the way of this captain to die in disbelief, not believing that God could do this, not believing the word of God that he would do this, and as a result, dying and not getting to partake in this great feast. So listen, rather than disbelief leading to death, may we be those who have the boldness of these lepers, who realize the desperation of our situation and take hold of the salvation that God has provided us in Jesus, and who are filled with so much love and concern for others that we don't keep this good news to ourselves. Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this good news of the gospel. 
Lord, we thank you that the enemy has been vanquished, Lord, the enemy of our souls, that our souls are no longer under siege, Lord, because you have won the spiritual battle for our souls. Thank you, Lord, that you redeemed us, that you have set us free from spiritual famine because you, the bread of life, have come to us, Jesus. And so we take this bread now in our hands, your body broken for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, you said, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. Lord, thank you that you nourish our souls. You cure the famine of our souls. And Lord, you give us abundance. Thank you for the promise that because of what you did on the cross, in your perfect life, Lord, and your sacrificial death, Lord, thank you that as a result of that, we can have the hope that we will truly sit with you at your banquet feast forever. And we look forward to that day. We look forward to it in hope. And it's in that hope that we now take this bread together as your people in celebration and in faith. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.